this episode of Tez Podigodi, I have the privilege of welcoming one of the leading educational research voices of the past 40 years, Professor E.D. Hirsch. Professor Hirsch has been a key voice in the knowledge-led curriculum movement, as well as a major influence in the formation of education policy in England. Don, hello. Hi. Um, <laughs> so, this is amazing. <laughs> well, it's been, a, it's been a long time since we spoke, and it was in, in, in person last time, but your ideas during that four years since we last spoke in England have, have just come on so much. And we now have, I think, you know, everyone in the UK would agree now that at least in England, we have a knowledge-led curriculum that's been rolled out. So I wanted to start really by, you know, going back to the basic idea of your, of your work, which is that there is a good reason to teach a shared body of knowledge. And from that shared body of knowledge, we can have a shared understanding. I mean, that's, that's a, that's a very simplified version. Do you want to give sort of your summary of your central idea? Yes, well, that's certainly the idea I started with. It isn't completely the idea that I've ended up with, <laughs> which the, the later ideas uh, sort of fill it out uh, br more broadly. Uh, but the technical point that really was developed by cognitive psychology in the 1960s, as early as the 1960s, but not before then, remarkably enough, uh, was that to understand language, you had to have a lot of unstated knowledge that would disambiguate the language and amplify it so that you could understand what the speaker meant or what the writer meant. <laughs> I happen to get into that technical issue from uh, being in, in English literature and a theorist there. But, uh, that is an earth-shaking uh, insight because it means there's no such thing as a general reading skill. Every, to, to, to read the newspaper or to, co uh, to communicate between you and me, there has to be uh, already some unspoken, unheard, shared knowledge uh, that enables us to understand each other. And I'm presuming that everything I'm saying now is pretty straightforward. But on the other hand, uh, it's not just that I'm assuming people understand the words, but also that they understand this whole context that we're talking about educating young, uh, young kids and also uh, unifying a nation, which is uh, one of my chief aims. So that technical point that if I say, Polly, put the kettle on, we'll all have tea, You've got to know what you're putting the kettle on and why you're putting the kettle on and what's in the kettle. This all, I mean, that's a, about as simple an example as I, I can conceive, but it's true in every branch of language. So what that, what that means is if you, if you look at the question of equity, I don't know how, whether you want to turn to that subject, but that was the te technical point. You need specific background knowledge to understand what somebody has written or what somebody is saying to you. And obviously that has application to the classroom. Yeah, I mean, that, I mean, that was one of the things you sort of got criticized for in the 80s when this idea first came about. And, this, and there started being an argument of, why have you chosen this knowledge? And you're, you know, we, I've spoken to you about it before, and you said it wasn't me that chose it. <laughs> it's, 
this is as a society. Well, that's right. Uh, actually, I didn't choose it. I, uh, when I was doing this work in cultural literacy, which made a, uh, uh, there was a, a lot of controversy around that book, but there's a lot of interest in it at the same time. And yeah. so I sold lots of copies of it. But the, the basic point was simply the one I just stated, that people have to have a lot of the same background knowledge in order to communicate. And uh, then we were into the multicultural movement in the United States, or at the beginning of it in the 80s, and everybody says, well, that's your culture, that's Anglo culture, that's uh, this culture, that stuff. And, uh, and that argument has persisted, and it has uh, really uh, kept everything roiled up uh, in the United States anyway. Uh, so that, and of course, we don't have, like you, a national curriculum, which is uh, un, an unfortunate uh, truth, and I hope that changes a bit. But uh, if I can ask you a question, uh, has uh, including uh, more specific knowledge in the national curriculum in, in the UK, has that actually... Um, it made a difference that's yet noticeable. I think in the in the UK you've got this situation where it, it was introduced and it was very controversial because it became aligned to politics quite quickly. So you, the the idea became political rather than um, academic, if you want to call it that. And mm -hmm. so what we've seen is lots of people. I think the central idea of a sequenced you know, sequence curriculum of knowledge that is in a right is in a certain order and it's arranged and people are talking about content a lot more and talking about mm -hmm. curriculum a lot more. And I'd say that was probably the biggest success of it. Where when you get down into the detail is is where there's a problem because I think some people will say, okay, I can read the sentence, uh, he showed Herculean strength and lifted the rock. And they would say, um, but you don't need to understand the, the myth of Hercules to understand the sentence. And others will say that that sentence is less understandable without knowing the myth of Hercules. And so I think those grey areas are where perhaps the debate now sits is, okay, how much? I see. Yeah, um, I don't know if you want to, what your thoughts on that are. I mean, what would you say the difference between understanding the sentence from inference and understanding it from inference plus? The myth of Hercules, what's the difference there? Well, you don't need to know much about Hercules to understand that, but presumably you don't know there was a, uh, it, it's, it's Hercules was a person, or Herculean refers to a personage, of, or mythical or not, and was very strong. I mean, that's not a lot to know, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't seem to be worth arguing about since you can <laughs> find out in about 20 seconds uh, that this was a very strong guy, and that's what it refers to. I, I, but, but look, I, uh, I, I don't want to argue. It, it, the, the issue of class is always coming in in that kind of argument. Indeed. And, uh, and the aim of democratic schooling is, is to erase class to some extent. 
and to increase equity. And that's where this idea of shared background knowledge, whether it's Hercules, I mean, if you want that phrase to drop out of the English language, okay, but it is important that people, if it is used, that everybody understand what the heck it means. And uh, the reason, and here's the reason why in a more general way, uh, it's not just the end result where people in the nation are able to communicate with each other. That's, of course, the end result that you hope for. Uh, because it all, when you communicate, you can also find ways probably of reaching accommodations. I, I, it, it's, a, it's an urge to the political center in a way. Yeah. On the other hand, on the other hand, uh, the real issue, particularly for people on the left, and I'm a person of the left actually, uh, who, who want to say you have to take in everybody's culture and and, and be embracing to everybody. I agree with that general uh, idea, uh, uh, but let's take the point about how much, say, take Hercules again, come back to that in the, in the classroom. So if some children in the class, and that phrase comes up, some children understand it and some children don't, that's, a, that's not good. Yeah, uh, because and the whole reason for having a coherent sequence in a national curriculum, in a way that there's not only a reason because knowledge builds on knowledge, but the understanding of speech builds on the knowledge that you have for the opening reason you gave, and so if everyone in the classroom is able to understand the speech that is going on in the classroom, then everybody can learn. But if some kids, if some children are excluded from that understanding, then you are simply exacerbating class differences and and, uh, educational differences. So it's very, that's where this idea of having having commonality and uh, and cumulativeness in in the curriculum is so important because it builds in in technical terms the cognitive psychologists call it a speech community. Yeah. A speech community is defined as a group of people who understand each other because of that common background knowledge. And if um, if a classroom is not built into a speech community, then you are leaving some kids out. And the aim of having that kind of coherence and build up is as much for equity as it is for uh, enhancing learning generally. So equity is an outcome of doing that. And, I, and it's very important in the United States, the left is all for multiculturalism and asking whose culture and that, and that kind of question. And if you are not saying, well, we all really need to share a culture, that's what national schooling is about. Uh, if, if you don't insist on that, the left should come to realize that they're injuring equity, they're injuring the chances of these children to understand language well. 
And so that argument for equity is, seems to me so powerful, but you have to understand the technical reason why it's necessary. It's, it's all very well, I mean, it, you think ways have to be found to include excluded uh, cultures and people in the curriculum. That seems to me to be the way to do it. It's part of the commonality. But to feel, to insist on perpetuating these cultural and class differences in the national conversation or in, in national feeling is a big mistake because you're leaving people out and you're increasing inequality if you do that. And that's an issue that the, what, what we call in the USA the cultural left needs to understand clearly. You have to choose whether you're going to have common uh, equity or not. Uh, is equity important or is, all of, uh, is multiculturalism important? You mentioned in the book, um, your new book that's, that's coming out, How to Educate a Citizen, and, and it's something you've touched upon in previous books, is that, you know, that there's a transition period between when, when the shared knowledge can shift. And, and if I get this right, your argument is that, yes, you can change, you can change the shared knowledge, but first you need access Absolutely. to change the knowledge. So there's a, there's a transition period where, you know, if we get all these kids learning the same thing, so everyone has an equal chance at the power structures, then they can change the shared knowledge when, when they enter those power structures. Do you think that that is an accurate description of what you said first? And I don't want to put words in your mouth. Uh, I, I hadn't thought of it. In, 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 there's a trend, transitional bit. I'm, <laughs> I, I, I'm so focused on the elementary grades mm. because I, I think there becomes a point when it's too late. Okay. It's hard to make up. I mean, you're talking about transitions, and are you talking about age transitions or national transitions? I think um, I think in terms of if you're a, if you're a, uh, an ethnic minority and you're saying, well, you're teaching me a a, a mainly white content, mainly white cultural content, right. and then. I, from what I've gathered from your book, it means that if they learn that content, then they can take those power structures away or, 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 or be part of those power structures so that they can become to recreate a, a new narrative. And then that might over time change. And you seem to be avoiding, you didn't, you didn't advocate for these quick fixes. The West, just well, throw it, you know. I, I, what I want to do, and, and very explicitly, I mean, first of all, that when you're talking about transition, I'm, I'm presuming maybe you're saying there's got to be more black culture, for example, included in the curriculum. That's, that in its, yeah, I mean, I think everybody should agree to that. Hmm. And, uh, and at, at that point, that particular issue of being excluded uh, tends to disappear. And you've got, that's where you have to be very careful how you make the curriculum, whether it gets it, uh, it politically accepted. It's a big issue now in the yeah. United States. Uh, it, but I also think it's very important not to use those terms, black culture and white culture, because it's a, it's a total accident of history. Mm -hmm. uh, it is not something that 
it's almost as though black and culture are connected in some way, but black and culture are not connected. That's a really important point to make. Culture, it, it, that, uh, I, if we can turn just a bit on that point to what I think is the most uh, encouraging and interesting part of this new book of mine is my discovery of what's going on in current brain science. Mm -hmm. And what they're discovering is that the human neocortex is more like what Locke said than what Rousseau said. By that I mean uh, uh, Rousseau said the child has a built-in nature that has to be developed in that individual nature. Uh, the development of it is what education really is. Uh, he was the precursor of John Dewey and, and uh, the progressive movement. John Locke, uh, decades earlier, had said, the mind is, of the child is a blank slate. It's a white paper. Yeah. It's something to be written on. And it turns out that John Locke was right. This is, a, this is a tremendously important point because that means there is no black brain or white brain. All of those brains are essentially the same. They're all blank slates. Hmm. And, and so what in the States we have to decide in the United States is, uh, are we going to engage in ancestor worship or, uh, or are we going to say, no, we're making... Uh, we're making a, a national culture uh, that everybody joins because you can have more than one. I mean, uh, it, it, I know a lot of people have more, more than one culture who are bicultural, tricultural. Mm. Uh, it, it, one doesn't exclude the other, but what the schools of a nation have to do, and that was certainly the initial American idea, of Noel Webster and Benjamin Rush and Benjamin Franklin was we've got to have an American culture. Never mind all this British stuff that, yeah. that we inherited, you know. And and so I think that's a tremendously I mean, this new work on this human neocortex is it's called it's called cortical plasticity. That that is. And of course, what, what made John Locke originally understand that point about the human brain, he says, that's the only explanation for this immense diversity of cultures that, uh, that history has shown. All these different languages, all these different points of view. And, so, and you can see why that fits in with evolutionary psychology so powerfully and uh, uh, and uh, I think it's a very fascinating book, that book uh, called Sapiens by Harari, uh, which points out how human flexibility uh, allowed these groups to create hugely powerful organisms, multiple, an organism made out of all these different intelligent people. And another side to this brain science is that they've even discovered a cell in the human brain, the, uh, a neural cell, a brain cell, that's a different kind of cell from uh, any other creature. And so uh, 
I, I think there's a tremendous chance to overcome all this cultural antagonism uh, by understanding that there are, a person can have multiple cultures, and there's nothing Anglo, inherently Anglo, about uh, any, the culture that white people happen to historically have gained. There's nothing white about it, and there's nothing black, inherently black, about black culture. So it's it, the racialization of culture in the United States is is a, a, a real misfortune, a tremendous misfortune, and it and and it's been determined that it increases racism in in the nation to think that way. And, the, and when you translate that to uh, the schools, I mean, in the UK, we've, as you said, we've got a national curriculum, so there is some cohesive national plan. You know, it's it, it's it's there. Yeah. It, it's, it exists to be debated, but it exists already. Whereas in the US, you don't have the existence of, of that as yet. So does that make right. it, because you're not coming from a base of it already existing, does that make it even harder to implement? Because to get agreement on what that common language or common understanding should be is, is almost an impossibility. Well, it may be. On the other hand, I my hope is, and, and the plea I, I make in this new book is, if the public gets a little bit of awareness of this basic uh, truth about, well, what I would call a pragmatic truth, Americans are supposed to be very pragmatic, then they will say, and, and uh, one interesting feature of the American situation, of course, is federalism. That's very big in the United States. The federal government is balanced by the by the different states, the 50 states. And there's where there's a possibility because the states do have standards. Uh, they happen to be empty standards right now in the United States because the theories are all wrong, that uh, people think there's such things as general skills and the states just say, teach these general skills. Um, and since there aren't any such things as general skills, that's a little problem. If the public gets better informed about this issue, my hope is they'll demand that the states make a state curriculum in the United States. And then uh, I think that once, uh, once the improvements become clear of what happens to a state that does that, uh, the equity improvements, the uh, quality improvements as well, uh, then I think that's the battle. I think then the battle will be won. It's extremely difficult in, in the United States, but, uh, and I think what I just described is the, the only, probably the only plausible way, because there won't be a national curriculum that's very detailed, that that would be strongly resisted because of this federalist, federalist uh, orientation. Hmm. But, I mean, it all depends on how widely spread this insight is that the end result has to be commonality. Uh, otherwise, you have the kind of polarization and fragmentation that is so rampant right now in the United States. Do you think it's more important that 
do, do you think the more important message for the public to grasp is that this is about a shared content or do you think it's or shared understanding or do you think the actual more importance is what the end result is i is it an easier sell to say look we're going to try and get a curriculum that you know everyone can have feel a bit of ownership on or is it more important to get them to understand that you know if we get this right this is what happens at the end result are people inherently more going to be more you know buy into it more if they can really clearly okay well I may, I may take a few hits you know i may take a few hits on this content choices but i know that the end result is, is going to be good or do you think that if you 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 get people satisfied with the content then you know the end result will sort itself it's a complex I, 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 it's, a, it's a meandering question i apologize but, I, um, I wish i could answer that one. <laughs> I, I mean <laughs> i i think if, if you've got a lot of influential people understanding the technical point, mm. I mean, the, the, everybody would like uh, peace and harmony, it seems to be, in, in, in a nation. And also, they, everybody would like competence, which means you are, you are better off economically. Mm. And so those are two goals that people agree on, it seems to me. Peace and harmony, and well, uh, and and uh, re being well off, and uh, if you say, well, these are the things you need if you want to have that, uh, and and the problem is the school theories have all been wrong, and and we need to demand that the that a definite curriculum is followed and everybody understands the pragmatic need for it. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I, in my book, I use the, it's a perfect example uh, because the French do not do things by half measures. They, they, what happened in the 1960s in France is very instructive. Because, uh, you know, there used to be the saying on any particular day, a French child, every French child uh, was learning in a particular grade, was learning exactly the same thing. And uh, that, that was uh, true uh, until uh, after the war. When the, uh, after the war, the problem was the Americans had high prestige. The French decided even Coca-Cola was, a, was a, a good thing to drink. And uh, it, because, you know, they loved uh, Eisenhower and, <laughs> and, and the Americans coming in as liberators and marching down the, the avenues of Paris. And the problem was that all of this American fad, they decided to take over the American uh, style of education. And in fact, there were riots in the streets by the students about this rigid education just means we're replicating class structures and that sort of thing. And so they got rid of the national curriculum, essentially, in the 1960s. And then what happened in France was a disastrous uh, spread of inequity, inequality. And 
the the the, the French keep got such good records. That's why I think it, it, it's so because you can trace that pattern so precisely. Uh, how if you have a common curriculum, you have social a much greater degree of social equity. If if you get rid of a national curriculum, much greater inequality. Do you think and, that people who who made it into the power structures then didn't do a good enough job of changing that common understanding in the sense that if if kids coming through didn't feel or the or the messaging was wrong, if kids didn't feel they could identify with the curriculum or that they weren't they didn't they didn't see ownership there, was there a problem in the messaging or was there a problem in the people who wrote reached power structures not changing those structures? Are you talking about in France? Yeah, or in France, or in, in general, if this model of a shared understanding is successful, what do those what needs to change to make sure that you don't get the riots where people say this is replicating class structures? How do you, how can, what is a responsibility on the people in? Well, I, I think what you can do is illustrate, I mean, if somebody is successful in the United States, it's generally because they have a, a become highly literate and highly competent, mm. uh, which means that they've acquired this necessary culture or ethnicity, whatever you want to call it. And so then you call them whitey or they're cop-outs or something like that, or do you use them as models? Then on the other hand, well, are you asking how are kids going to feel who come into a, a, a culture that they feel is alien? Does that actually happen when you start in kindergarten with? Are you saying it's a it's a it's a learnt um, what's the word? It, it's a it's a it's a learned sort of subjugation from your from your from your. Well, I, if we go back to this blank slate point, hmm. um, now by the time a kid gets to kindergarten, it's no longer a blank slate, but it's very very plastic, uh, to use the term the brain uh, scientists use, and at that. If if the child has been experiencing what you might call the print culture or the school culture or whatever you want to call it culture, but I wouldn't give it a racial color mm. or even necessarily why it would have to be a, a, a social stratum color. It's the school culture. It's the national culture. It's the print culture. It isn't inherently... Uh, uh, belong to a social class. You generally, in the in the democracy, you generally can change your social class if you become highly competent, and and, uh, and that that's always the hope. It's a culture of equality, really, or should be. And if it's regarded as a culture of equality rather than a culture of class, uh, that's a terribly important point to convey. It would seem to me. The cult, the I guess your argument. We, we mean we at the moment we're comparing. We're using the example of what we've got, which you've already said is inadequate. We need to incorporate different. We need a holistic curriculum. So it's 
you know, I, I guess we're, we're making a false comparison at the moment because I, I guess part of your argument why there is so much anger in America at the moment and why so much of the black community feel isolated is because that, that process hasn't happened, essentially. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, that's a wonderful way to put it. I thank you, John, for putting it that way. Yeah, exactly. It's because uh, there isn't commonality in the culture, which mm. is what needs to happen for any human tribe to hold itself together. There was a moment, I think it's very telling, uh, uh, E.O. Wilson is a sociobiologist and uh, he, his colleague, David Wilson, is a, an evolutionary psychologist. And they wrote an article together which ended with a, with a, with a, a sentence that went something like this. Uh, Within a group, selfishness often prevails. Between groups, only altruistic groups prevail. The, the, when there's a conflict between groups, the altruistic society always conquers the selfish society. Very interesting point, because uh, human, uh, human societies developed that altruistic strain in a much, to a much greater extent than other species have developed it. But we've still got plenty of the <laughs> selfish. In, <laughs> still got plenty of problems, yeah, yeah, impulses left. Right. But I think what I think it needs to be understood that it's really good for everybody if there is a sense of commonality and a sense of community that can only come from an ability to communicate well. And that means it can only be based on, on shared, shared knowledge. There's an interesting bit in your book that was really relevant, I think, to, to schools in the UK who are forming their own curriculums and um, they were due to be tested on that, well, inspected on that this year and next year, but obviously with the COVID uh, happening, it hasn't really happened. But mm. the bit in your book that struck out to me was where you said each individual school was prioritising different bits of knowledge. And, you know, you had this really sort of um, schizophrenic, if you don't mind me using the term, um, curriculum where one, you know, schools could be 60 yards apart and the kids could come out learning completely different things. And the yeah. dangers of that, and I think that's a good illustration of your point, is that, yes, we need to, you know, individuals and personalization matters to a degree, but if, if everyone comes out knowing different stuff, how, how do you talk to each other, essentially? I would, you, instead of personalization and differentiation, which are the terms used in the United States mm. for uh, focusing on the individual and I thought it, a better term ought to be, ought to come into uh, mode, was uh, accommodation. accommodation. Accommodation is the old biblical uh, exegesis idea that the, word, the Lord accommodated what he said to the understandings of the individual. That's why you, and that was a way of, uh, scholars differ, explain sort of different elements in mm. scripture uh, and, and made them unified. Um, that idea of accommodation means that the 
everybody is getting the same message, but the, that's where good teaching comes in, it seems to me. You do detect where a child is not completely getting the, the point, and you, you find ways of communicating uh, that to the child, but the message is the same. Yeah. And, and if that idea in teaching and personalization or individualization, if that idea could, be, because you see in the United States historically, what happened was that uh, they unbolted the desks uh, in the 1940s. Uh, this is when progressive education came in. The bolted down desks, all children in a row looking at the teacher and the teacher. And the new dispensation was uh, uh, beginning teachers are told, no, 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 no longer should that be the case. The teacher should not be a sage on the stage where everybody is getting the same thing. The teacher should be a guide on the side and each child should have uh, individual, uh, should be taught individually. And I wonder if this Zoom period uh, uh, isn't going to let whole class instruction make a bit of a comeback because it, was, it would be hard to do all, all the sort of, at least in the United States, the way that it, not only were the desks unbolted, they were completely removed in due course. And in the early grades in the United States, you have these big tables where children are sitting around looking at each other and doing projects and having multiple centers, as they're called, in, in these early grades. Well, with that kind of schooling, no wonder our verbal scores are going down in, in the USA. So, do you think um, do you think there's a different definition in the US of child-centered learning as there is here? In the sense that we get this a lot. We get a lot of American um, research come over, and there's this notion of child-centered learning. In the US, it appears to me that it, from your description, it appears to be something where the child can dictate the content and the method of instruction. Well done. Yep. Yeah. Whereas yep. in the UK, child child led, it's called, is where the adult still decides on the content and the adult still decides, you know, how it's constructed. It's just the child may think they're leading that learning, or you know, it's still a heavily structured environment. Whereas your description of child centered learning in the US seemed to be incredibly much more Montessori. I would, I would you know, yeah. Is that is that a distinction there? Would you say that? Well, it varies. It's a big country and. Uh, it varies tremendously. But yes, I mean, how I interviewed in the book a couple of teachers who had experienced both uh, child-centered learning and also the they were core knowledge teachers. We have a, a definite core knowledge curriculum. There are several thousand of these core knowledge schools. And they're very successful. And the teachers described the so-called child-centered teaching that they were asked to do. First of all, they had no definite curriculum. I mean, they were to reach certain skills, but they weren't given the particular 
subject matters that uh, to promote those skills. And it, it was really astonishing to think of it because it's so hard to teach that kind of a class. You have all these centers going on and how do you bring coherence into it? And they, they said they were exhausted at the end of the day uh, doing that kind of thing. And I hope that teachers themselves will come to see the benefits of, of greater coherence, or the, what I would call the, the accommodative approach, and, and the fact that the society needs it. It's, it. The Americans have been really injuring themselves badly by, the, by this tradition of, uh, of incoherent early education. And, and it's not totally uh, disjunctive dis with the, the current mess we find ourselves in right now. And in the book, I mean, when I, when I first uh, uh, met you back, back four years ago, we had a long chat about pedagogy and approaches. And, and you were clear that, you know, if you can have a coherent structured curriculum, and if you know the delivery of that curriculum, as long as it got to the same endpoint, you weren't that bothered about. You didn't, you know, if the kid knows what they're supposed to know by the age of sixteen, you know how they got there. You weren't that. You weren't that fast. You seem to have been a little bit more strident with your thoughts on pedagogy in the latest book, perhaps, where you know you are you do more strongly advocate for a more direct from the front style. Do you think that it's possible to be more progressive? And I'm. I'm using that word lightly because I know that the definition in the US is different to the UK again slightly on that. But can you be a project-based teacher with a coherent sequence curriculum that can get to the same endpoint as a direct from the front teacher? Do you think? Um, <laughs> according to the two teachers I interviewed who had the, the both kinds of uh, very interesting like that chat book, was it Tiresias who was first a band and then a woman? I can't remember which. <laughs> Stretching my uh, shared knowledge there, John. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, <laughs> the, so they really ha experienced both of these modes of, of teaching and uh, are completely converted to the sage on the stage, primarily sage on the stage point of view, uh, because. Um, it, it, they had so much in See, when you say projects, you are leaving the child in an, uh, in an un, unguided way on the theory that discovery learning is better than passive learning. That's usually the way it's presented in the education schools. And this turns out to be quite a bit of, uh, quite fallacious. I mean, there is, a, there is a good deal of work on uh, this issue of, um, what should we call it, some kind of overt instructional process versus discovery learning. And some top cognitive scientists uh, science have actually studied this. And they are uniform in saying that there is no good evidence that these discovery modes work nearly as well as guided instruction. And 
I think we have to go with the science unless you can produce really good evidence that this uh, uh, that discovery modes of learning leave a stronger uh, impression on the mind and greater understanding and so on. Those are the art usual arguments for it. Uh, but there's there's no evidence of that. In fact, the, the evidence is on the contrary, that instead of spending time doing that, actually, if you learn something and and have to retrieve it a, a couple of times, so testing, unfortunately, is a good thing to do because it, it makes you retrieve information. Mm. That those old-fashioned ways of of teaching without the hickory stick, of course, are, uh, are superior according to cognitive sciences. And this is because upends a lot of what uh, teachers have learned in, in their teacher training. But that whole tradition turned, you must understand that whole tradition was not based exactly on a pedagogical mode. The discovery argument came later. Yes, I mean, if a child is engaged and concentrating on something, which was the original idea, then they'll learn instead of letting their minds wander and so on. That's absolutely true, of course. But if you can have the child engaged in a coherent way with scaffolding and so on, that's what's called instructivism. That's actually better. And until that tradition of pedagogy actually assimilates what cognitive scientists have been saying, what the, what the science really says, I think we have to say, no, this is what you say happens, but it is not what happened. That so-called child-centered education where you're encouraging the child to discover these things on its own actually isn't as effective as making sure that the it's all scaffolding for the, for the child and the egg. then you take the next step but the preparation has to be there the new learning uh, it was put very succinctly by one cognitive scientist that if you want to uh, you're developmentally ready to learn this new thing if you already know some the preparatory thing, so that what you can learn or what you're ready to learn depends on what you already know. Period. Do you think that? Um, <laughs> do you think that the pure discovery learning? I mean, I don't know the US system well enough, but I can't think of any instances in the UK where that pure discovery learning exists. It's always even when you look at discovery learning in the early years, there's a, the, the, the teacher is, it's almost a lie in the sense that the teacher is still directing the learning. It's that the child may think they're discovering it, but really they're discovering the breadcrumbs left by a teacher. Would you still say that was directed teaching, really? That, you know, <laughs> if you're leaving the breadcrumbs, it's a scaffold, isn't it? And I think, I mean, in the US, Again, this is a problem that we get a lot of research from the US and people say discovery learning is bad. Everyone in the UK is going, well, we do that in the UIFS. But then you look at the definitions and you have this problem where the, 
the teacher is really directed in, in directing the learning in the UIFS still to, to quite a high degree in the early years foundation. In the US, is, are they really not then? Is it not the case that they're laying the bread? I, I don't know. Hmm. I'm not an anthropologist of the classroom. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know what's going on. Yeah. Uh, I really, and, uh, but uh, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a real issue. People get very angry on, on this score. I, I'm sorry that that's the case but in any way uh this is i'm i'm simply going by the uh uh articles i read and i pay more i pay more attention to highly refereed highly respected scientific articles than i do to a lot of the education articles because uh, it seems to me the articles that i read in in a lot of education journals always come out with the right answer, as it were. Uh, the discovery learning is always lead to stronger results. And, so, and, and the non-education journals come out with precisely the opposite uh, view. But they haven't got as much of an axe to grind, it seems to me. And so I, and besides, they're, they're rather rigorous about uh, re having the, the stuff refereed uh, in a proper way. So I, my conclusion is to any beginning teacher or administrators, pay attention uh, to the cognitive scientists. Uh, and, and where there's, I mean, it is really, a, I, I make this point in the book, it's really an intellectual disgrace that uh, our university uh, centers for instructing teachers and our cognitive psych departments in the same university are teaching different science, so to speak. This is one of the things that came out in the uh, scandal over uh, phonics in, in the United States, where people were still following uh, naturalistic modes of teaching kids to read and they weren't learning to read and uh, the science all said explicit phonics is very important in early reading and the answer of these uh, education professors was they have their science we have ours mm. and and that's a, an intellectual disgrace and uh, it 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 really is something that we, the public, shouldn't stand for any longer because uh, kids hadn't, didn't in the United States anyway learn to read by these naturalistic ways. And it's also a matter of equity that, uh, again, that's always the poor kids who are not learning through these naturalistic modes. I got, um one last question I wanted to put to you before, before, before we end was about uh, domain-specific skills and, and transfer, near transfer and far transfer. Yeah. And you talk about it in the book and, and, and you say there are, there, there are no general skills. Do you think that's completely true? I mean, do you think that things like uh, confidence, well, not confidence, but teamwork skills, strategy are completely domain-specific? Can you not have a strategizing skill that can go cross domain? 
I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but I, 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 I don't, I, I don't want to say because uh, everything I say about the domain specificity of skills is what I read in the learned papers, uh, what, what, I, what I read in the scientific journals. And there was that specific statement uh, by, uh, he just died now, Anders Ericsson. Anders, who, yeah, yeah. Who's a distinguished uh, uh, cognitive psychologist. And he made the blood statement, there is no such thing as developing a general skill. Yeah. Uh, and again, uh, perhaps in your example of strategizing, maybe it wasn't all that general, that strategizing might in fact be a domain. Uh, On its own, you mean, yeah. Uh, that you could learn, uh, it depending, depending on what that term actually means. Sure, I mean, nobody is denying that uh, <laughs> you could be generally good at tennis. <laughs> and, <laughs> And, uh, I, you know, and, and there are different ways of being good at tennis. You have different, you have different techniques, different styles. Uh, but the idea that you could be good at tennis by practicing golf is, uh, is probably not very plausible. And uh, so I, I don't think it, you need to take it further than that. The, the problem uh, in, in using that idea of a general skill is that it was used to avoid a coherent curriculum. Yeah. It was used to encourage each child doing his own thing. And that uh, didn't work. Yeah. Uh, and, but, but the excuse uh, was that, and this was, and Dewey was quite explicit about this in the early teens, that uh, it, this new mode of teaching is very helter-skelter, and it would be a total mess were it not for the fact that they're learning general skills. And I keep saying that if Dewey were now alive, he's a very honest thinker and a very clear one, and he would say I was wrong uh, about that. Uh, and uh, there aren't these general skills and, and we better get a coherent curriculum. Uh, so I think in a way we malign Dewey by insisting, well, Dewey said there are these general skills that people are learning. Do you think, um, this is a, I know I said that was the last question. I've got one more for you. because I'm just interested in your view and you've been part of these debates for so long now. Do you think there's a tendency in education to go to an extreme like there are no general skills or you know, there tends to be an extremism around because if you if you acknowledge there's a little bit of general skill or if you acknowledge there's a little bit of something in discovery, suddenly you have general skills curriculum and, and discovery curriculum. Do you think that because it's such a, I don't know why education is like that, but do you think there is a tendency to take to an extreme because if you let them think a light in, Suddenly the whole room lights up with, with this thing that you never meant. I know it's a problem with some academics who said this. Or do you think, you know, actually there are absolutes? 
Sorry, I would, be very I would be very surprised if there weren't a lot of truth in what you just said, that okay. uh, human nature being what it is. But I still think it, we have simply got to overcome any real disagreement between mainstream science and mainstream psychology and so-called uh, pedagogy or and we have our science and they have uh, theirs. It's, it's not true. There's only one science. And uh, you better find out which one is right if they're in disagreement. Yeah, I'll try. <laughs> but thanks for, thanks for your time today, Don. It's been really appreciated. Okay, thank you. It was very interesting.